Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on MovieHouseMemories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. You're listening to Lunchtime Movie Review from LunchtimeMovieReview.com. And we are the children of the 80s. The children of the 80s are back with another classic from our childhood. I'm Chris. I'm Patrick. And for this episode, we are finally reviewing something that Patrick has been begging all of us to review for quite some time. And that's no. why we have such a large group of people reviewing it with us today. No, not I haven't been begging for it. I, I, I like the Fletch movies, and there's a new one coming out this year. So that's... That's why we should probably review the the rest of the series, if you will, being a second film, being the rest of the series. Man, I hope Chevy gets in shape for this upcoming one. <laughs> He's got a lot of hard work to do. He does. Uh, this one is 1989's Fletch Lives, directed by Michael Ritchie and starring Chevy Chase, Hal Holbrook, Miss Bruce Springsteen herself, Julianne Phillips, Arlie Army, Randall Tex Cobb, and Cleavon Little. But, and she's the ex Miss Bruce Springsteen. Well, I guess at this point, yeah, she is. At the time, was she? I don't know. Was she married to him at that time? If she was married, to, I think she was married to him at that time, mm. but got divorced pretty quickly. I think uh, he he had enough of her once Skin Deep came out. He's like, I can't marry be married to a woman that makes this film. Okay. Anyway, before we get into it, a crappy word from our sponsor. Today's podcast is sponsored by Arnold T. Pants's Legal Services. Ladies, are you looking for a divorce attorney who's a romantic at heart? Well then, Arnold T. Pants is your man. Over the past decade, Arnold T. Pants has successfully represented the ex-wives of such prominent figures as Nostradamus, Claude Henry Smoot, Pete Lemangelo, Ed Harley, Elmer Fudd Gantry, Victor Hugo, and even Bobby Lee Schwartz II. And that guy's a cocksucker. He's not an easy one to defend, Patrick. <laughs> uh, their deep pockets are no match for Arnold T. Pants's razor-sharp mind and tenacity. Arnold T. Pants, he'll get you results with the big payout or dinners on him. That's Arnold T. Pants. zippity doo your way back to happiness. The end. <laughs> and Patrick, after an amazing commercial like that, I think you can only follow it up with an equally amazing summary, right? Oh, yes. This summary is as hilarious as that commercial. <laughs> I'm sorry so. for the people who make it through the <laughs> summaries. All right. Investigative reporter Erwin M. Fletch Fletcher is back. Fletch has just finished a big story about the mafia for the Los Angeles Times and desperately needs a vacation. However, Fletch's editor, Frank Walker, tells Fletch that he cannot afford to let him go for a little while. During the argument, Fletch receives a phone call for, from an attorney, Amanda Ray Ross, who represents Fletch's aunt. Ross is the executor to Fletch's aunt's estate and informs Fletch that he has just inherited his aunt's 80-acre plantation, Belle Isle, 
in Tubido, Louisiana. I think that's how you produce, pronounce it. Fletch immediately quits and heads off to the Deep South. Upon arriving in Tubido, Fletch is disappointed to find that the mansion is in ruins and located in a swamp, which most of Louisiana is, so I don't know why we thought differently. He meets his aunt's caretaker, Calculus Entropy, who Fletch decides to keep on as his staff. That night, Fletch has dinner with Ross at her home. Ross informs Fletch that an anonymous buyer is offered $225,000 for the Belle Isle estate. Fletch rejects the offer, and Ross and Fletch hit it off, and Fletch ends up spending the night with his aunt's attorney. No conflicts there whatsoever. During the night, someone sneaks into Ross's bedroom and injects her with a drug. The next morning, Fletch awakens to find Ross dead. Fletch calls the police, who arrest Fletch and charge him with Ross's murder. While in jail, Fletch is nearly raped by his cellmate, Ben Dover, before he is bailed out by criminal attorney Hamilton Ham Johnson. Ham advises Fletch to watch out for himself and advises him also to leave town. Fletch decides to ignore that advice, and soon after, he is approached by a realtor, Becky Culpepper, who offers another anonymous offer for Belle Isle, this time in the amount of $250,000. Once again, Fletch rejects the offer, suspecting that there is a story behind Ross's death and the anonymous offers for Belle Isle. Not long after, Fletch begins to get harassed. First, a group of hired Ku Klux Klansmen and their leader show up on the property to burn a cross. Next, someone sets fire to the Belle Isle mansion itself, and not long after that, Ben Dover tries to kill Fletch during a raccoon hunt with some Thibodeau locals. During the raccoon hunt, Fletch steps into something unusual, and he sends his sneakers off to Los Angeles for examination. The results show that Belle Isle is polluted by toxic waste. Fletch sets out to discover the identity of the mysterious anonymous buyer. Fletch learns that the local megachurch, Farnsworth Ministries, and its charismatic leader, Jimmy Lee Farnsworth, are interested in obtaining the Belle Isle property to expand their religious theme park. Fletch also learns that Becky is Farnsworth's daughter. Fletch also learns that the chemicals found on Belle Isle originated from a chemical waste facility in Mississippi. Fletch infiltrates the facility as a trucking tycoon and obtains an invoice from the plant's manager, which shows that Ham ordered the waste that was dumped on the Belle Isle land. Fletch returns to Thibodeau and crashes Ham's costume party. He confronts Ham with his evidence, to which Ham admits that he polluted Belle Isle out of revenge for the way he feels Farnsworth took advantage of Ham's mother before she died. Ham believes that Farnsworth persuaded his mother in her confused mental state to give away her land to the church, which allowed Farnsworth Ministries to build their garish amusement park. Ham's evil intent is to devalue the land owned by Farnsworth Ministries. Ham admits to killing Ross because she learned of his plan. Dover enters the room with a kidnapped Becky. Ham orders Dover to kill both Fletch and Becky, and Fletch creates a diversion by spilling the urn that contains Ham's treasured mother's ashes, one of Ham's most prized possessions. Fletch and Becky escape during the chaos. Fletch and Becky flee to the church theme park nearby and to the ministries itself. Farnsworth is in the middle of a broadcast when Fletch and Becky arrive. Ham follows them, and the trio interrupt the broadcast. 
Fletch announces to the television audience Ham's involvement in Ross's murder, and Ham states his intention to kill Fletch no matter what. Calculus arrives and shoots Ham. He reveals to Fletch that he is FBI Special Agent Goldstein, who has been working undercover as part of an investigation of Farnsworth Ministries' financial dealings. Goldstein's a very weird last name for that man. Not so much as entropy, but in the fallout, Fletch writes a new story about his adventures in Louisiana and decides to return to his old job at the Los Angeles Times. Becky decides to return with him. Upon his return, Fletch is thrown a welcome home party by his grateful co-workers and receives a $100,000 insurance check for the fire on Belle Isle. Marvin Gillette, Fletch's ex-wife's divorce attorney and current boyfriend, shows up at the party and offers to waive any future alimony payments if Fletch agrees to sign over the rights to Belle Isle to his former wife. Fletch signs over the polluted, uninhabitable plot of land with glee. And that is Fletch Lives. Arnold T. Pants would not have fallen for that. I can tell you that much. Smarter attorney than Gillette. Very yeah. much. All right. Fletch Liz was released on March 17th, 1989. The same day as Leviathan and Slaves of New York. The same month as Dead Bang, Heathers, Crusoe, Skin Deep, Chances Are, Dream of Little Dream, and Chris's all-time favorite film, Police Academy 6, City Under Siege, which Chris refers to often as the Empire Strikes Back of the Police Academy series. Man, I think you might want to reverse that. I think Empire Strikes Back is the Police Academy 6 of the Star Wars series. All right. Made on a budget of $8 million, it grossed thirty just over $35 million at the box office, making it the 35th highest grossing film of 1989, right behind Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, The Karate Kid Part 3, and the Burbs, and right in front of License to Kill, Lean on Me, and The Bear. Uh, is not based on, on any of the Gregory McDonald's uh, books, uh, although there were eight sequel and prequel books to choose from. They just decided to create their own story with the Fletch character. Um, it is was preceded by a much better film in 1985, and as we've kind of already referenced, a reboot of the series is planned for later this year with a film based on the second book in the McDonald's McDonald book series, Confess Fletch, which will star John Hamm as Fletch, which is ironic because Hamm was the villain in this case, as Fletch. And at the time, at least of this recording of this podcast, no word had been announced as to who will play the character of Francis Xavier Flynn, a character who got his own spinoff book series in the 70s uh, based off the popularity of the Confess Fletch book. Rotten Tomatoes has it at 37% critics and 54% audience. And that is the numbers on Fletch. So are you telling me that 1989 was Julianne Phillips' big year for movies? Two in one year? No, I'm going to say March of 1989 was the big, no. big year for Julianne Phillips, which is ironic because I remember I didn't see this in the theater, nor did I see Skin Deep in the theater. And these were both released on uh, in the theater at the same time. However, when I rented them, or I know my mother rented them. We rented both of these movies in the same night, just these two movies, and watched them. And it was so it was like Julianne Phillips' night. I saw both of them in the theater. Skin Deep was more memorable, but that's because they had glow in the dark condoms. But <laughs> now, uh, this is, as you said, it's the sequel in the Fletch series, not based on any books, which. Why would they do that? They have so many great books to choose from. They decided to just go out on their own. Was there some sort of 
I don't know, uh, licensing rights or problem with the author that they had to do this or. No, I, I, you know, I, I, I kind of looked at that to see if I could find the information and I couldn't find anything specifically, but I've always theorized, and this is just my theory that the Fletch character they created with the first Fletch film with all the disguises and all the crap that Chevy Chase did in that, that's not even in the book. He's not a disguised character. He, you know, he just is himself and that they, they were going to have to push reality. So it was might as well write a storyline that incorporated the disguises and, the kind of slapsticky situations that he sometimes gets into. Uh, and it was easier to do that than try to adapt one of the books. Cause this took a while for a sequel, especially in the eighties to come out. I mean, that's four years from 85 to 89 before this film came out. And I, I, I bet you, and I theorize that they tried to adapt some of the other novels and it just wasn't working the way they wanted it to. And because the, the books, although they have some comedy in them, uh, are, are serious kind of mysteries. I mean, you know that because you and I both read the books right. and are fans of Gregory McDonald. So, uh, so that I, I think that they are, they are trying to go more comedy route and none of the books lent themselves necessarily for that. I've always had uh, the impression that this was a pseudo ripoff more of the pink Panther, but Fletch was a little bit smarter. Uh, I was, I was uh, expecting professor August balls to show up at some point with all yeah. these damn costumes. And, and you're probably not wrong with that. I mean, I think they universal definitively wanted to continue with a Fletch series and Fletch, and it's been revisited so many times. I, I recall hearing something about chase returning to Fletch again in the nineties and just nothing ever panned out of it. And then a lot of people have taken efforts to, to kind of reboot the series. Kevin Smith, the most notorious not notorious, or at least probably the most famous in the early two thousands, was going to do it with Jason Lee playing Fletch. And he was trying to adapt Fletch one, the, the prequel book that came out, uh, years after the first, uh, probably about 12 years after, uh, the first book came out, which was supposed to be a younger version of Fletch. So, and would, would he have worked for a Fletch? You think his humor is not quite the same that Chevy chase gave us in 85. You know, I, I don't know. You know, I, I like Kevin Smith and I don't know if Kevin Smith, you know, if, if him adapting someone else's material, how that would have worked, because he's usually, you know, adapting his own stuff. And this is prior to cop out before he got. And I always joke about Kevin Smith, but prior to him getting into pot and that becoming a much more per pervasive theme through the remainder of his films and just doing some bizarre shit. Uh, that doesn't necessarily, I, th I think that someone who's not stoned out of their mind wouldn't think was, this is a, a, a viable project. Mm -hmm. So I, I kind of, I'm kind of curious what the screenplay would have looked like uh, having just recently reread Fletch one. Uh, so I, I, I would have, I would like to have seen some of that. And I like Jason Lee as an actor. I don't know how much of his uh, box office material as a lead actor, but I, you know, I can see it. Now, John Hamm, interestingly enough, now with a film that I think just recently finished uh, shooting, uh, he seems to be more in line with what I envision Fletch in the books. Yeah, I, don't, I agree. I, I don't think of Chevy Chase in the books. I mean, he's supposed to be a for, I think he's a former Marine. You know, he's highly intelligent, uh, overly sarc very sarcastic. Of course, that's kind of Chevy Chase. 
but I mean, he's not afraid to get physical if he needs to. Um, and he does not do the disguises and shtick that they do in the first or in these two Fletch movies, Fletch lives and Fletch. I don't think he would be referring to Peter Lemangelo. That's all. No, he would not. So what did you think of the tone of this one versus the, the first one? The, the first one is definitely more witty. This one is more slapstick. And I know you prefer wit over slapstick. So what is your overall opinion of the two tones of the, well, I, let's restate that. What is your opinion of the tone of this film versus what you've come to expect from Chevy Chase Fletch in 85? Well, I loved uh, Fletch from 85. I thought that was a good movie and it caused me to read the books. I saw the movie, then went and read the novels. And I read, I think, the entire series during the 80s. And now with the new Fletch coming out, as I said, I've just started to reread the book. So I'm kind of revisiting them now. And I really liked it. And it was a very different Chevy Chase. It wasn't Clark Griswold. It wasn't a farmer from a funny farm. Meaning it was a, it was a character that there was, although there was a twinkle in his eye with the sarcasm, he was highly intelligent and, and very motivated. And I didn't find that I, I felt the character wasn't as consistent in this film as compared to that one. You know, I, I, as I, as you point out, I, I like wit, I like clever dialogue and I'm, le- I less rely on the, you know, slapstick. Uh, and this one relies much more on slapstick than the first one. Um, I didn't care for the disguises in the first one. I, I do like, you know, when he, he says something funny and, you know, and just kind of over the top of most people's heads. Uh, and, and that didn't happen as much in this one. It was, you know, it was very goofy. The scene where he's not the evangelical preacher visiting, whatever they called it, but the one where he was called up out of the audience, that was very off-putting to me. That It, it wasn't Fletch. It wasn't Chevy. It, it, I just didn't like that scene. See, I, I saw that almost as an SNL skit. And, and, yeah. And, yeah, that was just kind of thrown in the middle. Didn't really move the story very, very much further, and I didn't enjoy. I didn't think it was funny. I didn't think it was clever, and I don't know what the point of you know him trying to feign being fooled by a charlatan, <laughs> because that's what Farnsworth is uh, in this process was even going to show. And then a little bit later, there's the scene where he's Ed Harley which was straight out of Pee Wee Herman to me. So Correct. I mean, it was a remake of Pee Wee and the biker bar is, is what it was, except that the bikers accepted Ed Harley much more than Pee Wee. <laughs> now let's talk about some other actors. Uh, Hal Holbrook as Ham Johnson is your, uh, your slimy Southern lawyer. And uh, the, the only thing that I, I did like, there was a little bit of foreshadowing in their story where he's, bailing out uh his goon randall tex cobb as ben dover we never got his real name but uh what'd you think of uh of uh good old hal i you know i liked him as him the friendly attorney giving some advice and just telling you know fletch what what she should do or mr fletcher what she should do um i like that i didn't like him as the straight out villain at the end because his motivation seemed so bare, you know, like razor thin that I was like, that's, so you start killing people (laughs) to to get the property and, and 
just so you can devalue the land for the Farnsworth industry. It seems like I, I, this seems like it's going to you know burn you just as much as them since your property is like right next to the Farnsworth industries. It, it's just, I didn't really like his motivation. So I was, you know, I hadn't, I really had not seen this since the early nineties, uh, even though I own it. <laughs> and, and I kept thinking it was Farnsworth who was the bad guy. And then suddenly it was him. And I went, Oh yeah, that's right. Holbrook's the bad guy. Cause I think, I think that everything is pointing to Farnsworth and I just kind of fell for that head fake. And I, I, I think it would have been better if Farnsworth would have been some sort of bad guy and not ham. Cause I liked ham as kind of just the, you know, compatriot with Fletch. It was kind of a waste of Arlie Emery. Correct. I mean, and, and I like Arlie Emery and obviously I know him much more for his military type roles, such as full metal jacket. And I think he's outstanding in that, but he just doesn't seem to be this character. He, you know, he's, I'm used to him in much more tougher, more direct roles. And I, I, you know, he, he's okay. I, I wasn't disappointed in his performance. It's just, yeah, it was all right. Now, Cleavon Little, who I always like, and uh, actually, I think he passed away uh, just a few years after this film came out. He was not very old. Um, I I enjoyed him. I I hadn't seen this in so long. I forgot that he was a government agent at first. And oh, should I have said spoiler alert in that? I already um, did it. Oh, yeah. damn it! Yeah, you did. Um, but uh, I it seemed out of place at the beginning. Like it was like way more than Blazing Saddles ridiculousness but he did give his flashes of he's not who he is. Did, what did you think of him in this? Um, personally, I thought that, uh, you know, with the Fletch, we saw the first in 85 that the two didn't jive. Like he didn't belong there. Like this should have been Fletch's work that he was doing. Yeah. I mean, I actually like Cleveland little and I like the character, even though I agree with you that it's, you know, that the character has, there's much more to this character that's then being let on. So I, I think it's one of the worst is the worst kept surprises in the film that he's uh, obviously some sort of law enforcement officer, which is revealed at the very end. Um, you know, I, 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 I thought his, I thought he had pretty good chemistry with Chevy chase. I enjoyed watching the two of them in scenes together um, because I think they have some of the best dialogue. And I think that's some of Chevy Chase's best dialogue is just having conversations with him. Uh, but, you know, he disappears in the, the last third of the film up until the final sequence. And all he's doing is playing Saving the Damsel in, the distri in Distress, which literally in this case is Fletch. And a funny Jewish joke. That's all. Well, it's a throwaway Jewish joke. It's not even that funny. And, yeah. you know, that you know, that was something that I did not recall is kind of the, you know, playing in the realm of racism <laughs> and stereotypes as much as they did in this film. You know, with that joke, uh, everything with the Ku, Ku Klux Klan, who's played off as, you know, fools, which, you know, I know no one's out there defending like the Ku, Ku Klux Klan. But it's like, how am I supposed to take that as a serious threat to Fletch if they're goofy and, you know, you know, dim-witted from the get-go? You know, there, there's no, there's no stakes in this. That's one thing I did like though, that, uh, they were so stupid. They would never think that a black man could be an FBI agent. So it was the perfect undercover job for him. Yeah, possibly. 
Now, you know, you've said in the past with other reviews with Chevy Chase uh, that uh, a lot of times he's better as the straight guy, you know, um, especially in uh, when Cousin Eddie comes in for the Christmas films. And you just said something uh, that uh, made me think of that just now is that uh, he was great in the scenes with Cleavon Little. And you think it is because it's better when he's playing off somebody and he's more the straight man, kind of a little bit more subdued. I, you know, going, once again, going to my personal taste is that Chevy Chase is a highly intelligent actor. I think he's a very gifted comedian, and I think he's really good giving funny dialogue. I don't like him as much when he does slapstick and and reference. You made reference to Christmas Vacation. I think the strongest parts of that film are when uh, once cousin Eddie shows up because prior to cousin Eddie showing up, he's playing all the slapstick. And after cousin Eddie shows up, it's like his character gains an intelligence and he, he suddenly has a lot of witty dialogue, which is where I like, you know, and I think that works a lot better in that film. And the same thing happens here is that he, you know, his, his best scenes are when he's having dialogue with Hal Holbrook or Cleveland little. And that's because usually they're exposition scenes, um, but he's acting in it and he's not just doing pratfalls or playing a goofy character such as uh, Ed Harley um, or the uh, the savior that he I can't remember what what the 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 uh, religious impersonator that he plays at that point having a guy drop his pants. You Was know, that the Bobby Lee Schwartz? Was that I the, think it might be? Yeah, I, I couldn't keep up myself. So, but I don't think that's nearly as funny. I think it's better when he plays intelligent and and he just gives great dialogue. And those are, I think, the strongest parts of the scene. And that's what the first Fletch is primarily about. He doesn't do that many costumes and stuff in the first Fletch. So I like, that's why I like that film a lot better. In this film, we did not have a whole lot of people come back from the first film. There was only um, the Underhills and... Briefly, uh, if if you didn't notice in the the zippity doodah scene, you you wouldn't catch him. But uh, we also had Frank; he returned, Richard uh, Libertini, and uh, so they did not bring back a whole lot of people. <laughs> no, they didn't. Sorry, I'm doing my in-laws Libertini. So very oh. nice. But you know what's very funny about this, and something that I had not realized was that. Uh, the actor who plays Frank was a recurring character in Barney Miller. And I was watching Barney Miller the other night where it was the episode where, um, where Joseph was going to, he was trying to be in the 1980 Olympics as a javelin thrower. And he almost kills the old lady in the park. Yeah. I know it's one you're talking about. And, uh, the guy's got great comedic timing. I didn't realize he was as funny. I mean, he, he's pretty good in Fletch one and two, but I think that when I saw him on Barney Miller, I'm like, Oh, this guy is really hilarious, but he, he likes the slightly offbeat uh, characters. Well, I don't know if he likes them or if that's what he got, you know, um, kind of typecast as, and that's what he kept coming back. You know, that's what people would cast him for. But I, you know, I like him. I, he was a character actor that I remember on television and the screen, uh, back when I was a kid. And so he's, he's comfortable. He was also in uh, Popeye. So, Oh, he, that's right. He was. Yeah. So playing a very similar character, uh, not to Frank in this film. I mean, he plays Frank pretty much straight up, but, 
uh, he, he's, you know, a character actor that uh, he's comfortable that I'm used to seeing. Was the, uh, the ex-wife's attorney in the first one, the guy who plays Gillette, uh, George, uh, Weiner. Yes. He was in the first one okay, as well. There's the other one that I, I forgot. Yep. He was, he was in the first one as well. I don't remember where he was at in the first one, but he was briefly in it. And you know, they, they continued that storyline into this film. They didn't really play the Fletch music as much either. The, the detective work music, whatever that theme was. The Harold Faltemeyer soundtrack. Is that, is that what it was? I was yeah. disappointed. That's one of the things that, um, that also is very nostalgic for me from the 85, uh, movie. And I, I only noticed it like once or twice in this film. Yeah. I mean, they, they, there's a Fletch theme that they, they come back to, but it is not played as heavily in it. And, you know, getting to music, that little zippity doodah scene is, I, I hate that scene. <laughs> I really, really, I mean, we, I know we had Fletch dreaming in the first film, uh, where he's a Los Angeles Laker basketball player, you know, so we have these uh, flights of fan fantasy that he has, you know, these daydreams, if you will. Um, but that's, I also think one of the weaker moments of the first film as well. And I certainly didn't like it that much in the second film. No, I could have done without it completely. Although I guess it did its job in building up his expectations of this beautiful Southern palatial estate and what he would get. Well, correct. But when you're saying, Hey, you, you got, you inherited an 80 acre plantation in Louisiana, including a mansion, I would have envisioned something dramatically, I guess, expensive, if you will. And to see this rundown, um, you know, house, literally from probably the 1800s. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, that, that I would, I would have been able to follow that without making this big elaborate production number that didn't move the story and just slowed us down. Why did the ant give him that property? I don't know. Uh, who knows? I don't remember an ant in any of the books at all. So no, I remember his mother and I remember, uh, his father being an element of a story a, a plot point in one of the books, but I don't remember an ant at all. All right. Well, I think we've talked this one out. Let's go around the table, our small table, after everybody else ditched us. When all is said and done, uh, Patrick, uh, does this film send the test of time? You know, I, I don't think it does. Because uh, one, I think that the comedy is it wears thin. Um, too much slapstick, not enough wit. Uh, I think the, the racist components of it don't play well today as they did then. And this is not one that I've revisited. I've seen Fletch probably 20 or 30 times in my life. You know, every couple of years I'll watch Fletch. I've probably only seen this two or three. And the only reason I own it is because it kind of goes with the other film I have. I just don't go and visit it that often. I, you know, I really like the Fletch character. I think it has resonance. I think that character can be portrayed on the screen effectively today. Uh, I'm curious to see if a film is the best uh, medium for bringing this character back because I could see it as kind of like a, you know, a streaming service, five or six episodes covering a book. And, and I think that would be really it could really be effectively done, and you can cover a lot of the 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 book series and. I, I like the casting of John Hamm. Uh, I liked Chevy Chase in this time. Still a character that I like from the 80s. I always saw his films and I enjoyed most of them. Um, 
back in the day. Most of them I don't think hold up water as well today, and this is one of them. So, yeah, I don't think it stands the test of time. It's not as enjoyable. I still think the first one stands up very, very well. Uh, but I look forward to revisiting the character with kind of a new generation and a new insight. Well, I'll pretty much echo everything that you just said. This doesn't stand the test for time, the test of time for me. This is probably the first time I've seen this film and it's gotta be at least 25 years. I might even push 30 years since I saw it. It's not one that I saw very many times. I bet you it was less than 10 and that's this viewing included for this film review. So it just never cop captured my attention the way the first Fletch was. And if I ever have the choice, I, I just watched the first one as opposed to even giving this one a second thought. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, that is it for our review of Fletch Lives. Please let us know what you think of the film in the comments section. And for our listeners over on moviehousememories.com, please rate it from one to five stars on that page as well. If you enjoyed today's review, please do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, the MHM Podcast Network, where we have many, many more film reviews from yesterday, today, and beyond. Until next time, I'm Chris. And I'm Patrick. And we have to get out of here, and you guys are zippity-doo-dah, and bye. This podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme song for Lunchtime Movie Review, Fireworks, is brought to you by Alexander Nakarada at SerpentSoundStudios.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of Lunchtime Movie Review, the MHM Podcast Network, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted. Noted.